Hey, this is Zach Efron, and you're listening to The Stupid Cancer Show. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> Somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> First, and welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. My name is Matthew Zachary, and I am a 17-year young adult survivor of brain cancer. And my name is Annie Goodman, journalist and young adult breast cancer survivor, and we're your hosts of the Stupid Cancer Show. Alrighty, it's not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer? Under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. Join us as we welcome the innovators at Cure Launcher, Steve Goldner, David Fuhrer, and Dr. Max Witcha, uh, Advocate Spotlight and Nutrition Expert Susan Bratton, CEO of Meals to Heal, which provides customized fresh meals delivered right to your door. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, a nonprofit organization that empowers young adults affected by cancer, Online at stupidcancer.org. And a stupid cancer welcome to any and all of our first-time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network and on iTunes as we broadcast live from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. And with that, it is time to welcome everyone with our self-ingratiating applause. Hi. Hello. Hello, Andy. Hi. Hello, Kenny Kane. How are you? What's going on? Not much. How was your weekend? I spent 50% of it here in this office, so... uh... Oh, that's right. It was 50% I thought awesome. you looked familiar. Yeah. <laughs> I spent 25% of a yes, year. Yes, you did. Well, did. we had a, a strategic meeting of our OMG Cancer Summit, uh, uh, what do they call that? The steering committee? A group of awesome mm-hmm. people. Yes, a really group, amazing group of awesome volunteers, all young adult survivors for that matter. Uh, this was the homecoming event for the OMG 2013 steering committee meeting to shore up strategies and volunteer efforts and outreach and fundraising and all sorts of amazing stuff. Yes, among a lot of other things mm-hmm. going on. And we had a lot of alcohol. There was a lot of alcohol. To celebrate the conclusion of our wonderful brainstorming weekend. A little bit of a thank mm-hmm. you. Yes. The least we can do. The least to we our can crew. Yeah. I had to inebriate. And pizza. Yes. And you brought your friend. Sephora. She'll I'm be a guest in a couple of weeks. I'm just going to say Sephora. Like I know. The store. It's my Sephora, mo- right? My senile mother calls her Sephora, and I yell at her every time. <laughs> it's Sephora. Like Sephora. TZ, right? TZ? S E P O R A H. Oh, S E P, not the. It's like. 
tzatziki, not like that. Yeah. Okay. Laura. Okay. I'll pretend like I didn't know what you guys are talking about. You're a mishpucha. You matter. She's here. So let's hear Kenny try to pronounce something Jewish. Say mishpucha. Mishpucha. I was like uh, when we were trying to get your daughter to say happy Hanukkah. Yeah. She was saying happy Hanukkah. <laughs> yes, in fact, that is exactly what happened. I am only so Jewish. Well, uh-huh. we have we have a full crowd in the studio tonight. Maddie Beckett, our wonderful intern, waving on the radio, and uh, nearly all of our guests, except for mm-hmm. Dr. Max, uh, which uh, we'll be calling him. But nearly all of our guests, in fact, that would probably be ninety percent of our guests, yeah. are actually physically here, uh, sweating their asses off in our non-air-conditioned studio. So, welcome everybody. We'll look forward to having you on the air later on uh, on the show. But I think we are obligated to not just mention the fabulousness of today's uh, inauguration, re-inauguration mm-hmm. of Barack Obama, which, again, is historic, amazing, and the, the, the proudness, if that's a word, that we have that the Supreme Court upheld uh, Obamacare, and mm-hmm. now it's here to stay. It's the law of the land. We've got four good years, and hopefully he'll be able to get stuff done at least before 2014 when the lame duck universe uh, descends yeah. upon D.C. Yes. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Uh, my thoughts are... He still doesn't have he's it's a pretty split houses in Washington. There's a little bit of gridlock. So he has a Senate, which is important. He has the majority of Democrats. Uh he will he does not have the House. He will not it will probably be a Republican House for years to come. But um you know, I think as the law is implemented and people see the benefits and how it affects them and how it positively affects them. Right. I think that people will chill out a little bit. And we won't see as many people trying to, you know, opt out or try to get it overturned. And hopefully, you know, it'll keep going forward. And, you know, we'll see how it goes. But right. there's been a lot of positive things, especially for people who have had cancer and yes. young adults mm-hmm. who have had cancer. There are many positives getting on insurance until you're 26. Right. I, I benefited directly. You at did. At the end of uh, 2012. That is yeah. correct. Yeah. So, you know, it's a good place. It'll hopefully avoid a lot of the, you know, Republican obstruction of them trying to, you know, take it to the Supreme Court. I know that was a big campaign right. promise the Republicans who are running. So we'll see what happens. But I'm excited to see how this actually unfolds. Yes, me and me as well. I would love to do a show. I mean, I think we're, we're discussing this. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a major topic at the OMG Cancer Summit in uh, Las Vegas this April. But I'd love to do a show, I think we're going to do anyway, mm-hmm. where we need to find young adult cancer survivors who don't like Healthcare bill for, okay. for whatever reason. If, in fact, ironically, if they benefited from it but still don't like it, yeah, I, I think that'd be a reasonable debate to have on the show. Mm-hmm. Non Chris Matthews shooting arrows at your face, right? You know, Hunger Games style. Just kind of hear you out, right? Exactly. Tell us why. Yes, Tell us exactly. your point of view. But I think the most important thing we we need to talk about is Lance Armstrong, um, because obviously he did his a full coming out party with Oprah, a mm-hmm. two part webisode episode, whatever yeah. it was, something sewed. It was like three hours. Three hours. Was it Was it three hours both nights? Or? No, it was an hour and a half Thursday and an hour and a half on Friday. Because I heard Oprah in the, in the, when she was on CBS like the week, mm-hmm. uh, the week before, she said that there was so much stuff that they couldn't possibly whittle it down to just one night. Yeah, they couldn't. It would have been like a feature film. Right. Um, yeah. Now, I have to admit, I did not watch the entirety of Friday, but I did watch all of Thursday. I watched all of Friday. Okay. So was there a different tone in yeah. his remorsefulness or no. lack of remorsefulness? Or? No. Okay. He did choke up a little bit in the second half, which you were waiting for the whole time. You're like, dude, you lied and sued all these people for years. 
so maybe you'd at least give us some crocodile tears. Right, exactly. And pretend that you're, you know, sad about it. But um, he cried. You know, he didn't cry. It's like a stretch. He choked up when he talked about how his kids were um, made fun of at school. Right. Um, and how they, and you know, how he kept defending his father for all these years and how he told them that he told his oldest son, who I believe is about 14, I think his name was Luke, and he told Luke to stop defending him. And uh, that was when he finally broke down a little bit and got upset. I heard that he got a little choked up when, when he talked about how he had to leave Livestrong. He, yes. He said that was his worst day. Right. Was when, um, not just the first time, when he had to step down as, I think, first he stepped down as chairman of the board, and then, I guess, a few weeks later, I don't remember where the timeline was, he was told he had to disassociate himself altogether, and he said that was the worst day of all this he's dealt with so far. Right, and he really had no choice to do that. He was literally said, get get out of here. Yeah, he bad had news. to, and he, you know, it was a lot of bad press. Even if I go you, on the uh, Livestrong Facebook page, you get a lot of comments from right. people ripping Lance, and they always they always comment, and they say, you know, we're committed towards helping millions of cancer survivors, and this has nothing to do with Lance Armstrong. We're not a cycling site. Right. And, you know, hopefully that will dis, uh, dissipate so they can get back to what their focus is. Right. But... Well, you can tell they've been doing some very strategic communications out there and yes. outreach out there that we're not about one man. Right. And that, you know, this is what we do. Yeah. And re- regardless of who he is as a human being, you yeah. know, he may have been the, the germination, but it's beyond that at this point. And I get that. I've seen so much, so many articles on Huffington Post and Slate and, and everywhere. Uh, cancer survivors and, you know, just pundits, I suppose, are opining in multitude of different opinions on this thing yeah. where, you know, there are there was this huge New York Times piece that was multiple pages of, of like almost like an expose into the underpinnings of their infrastructure and how he leveraged this to do that and, with, you know, all the com stuff. And at the end of the day, my position is, is as authentic as I can make it, which is that I strongly believe that the impact that Livestrong as a nonprofit has had far outweighs his sins because without what they did, whether it was leveraged on his credibility or not, gave birth to groups like us. Right. The idea of that cancer isn't all about research and cure and medicine, that there's a separate component to it, the quality of care, you know, and the quality of life. And that's where I think they helped to destigmatize that concept in the cultural you know, consciousness of the average American, which is, you know, it ain't over when it's over. Yeah. And like we say, when the doctor says you're cured, you're home, that's not the end of the story, especially when you're younger and you have hopefully 50 years left to live and not, you know, 10. There's no question that Lance Armstrong took away the stigma of having disease right. and showing how people can thrive after disease, but he's done so... I have, I'm have. i really torn on him. Right. I appreciate all he's done for the young adult movement and for... Kendra survivors in general, Livestrong's done a lot of great things, but I can't move past the fact that he survived. He was lucky. Well, and yeah, he was very lucky. To survive the extent of the disease he had with testicular cancer with it in his abdomen, in his brain, and his lungs, and then to continue to do that to his body kind of blows my mind a little bit. Just because I remember, you know, I go to the oncologist. I just finished treatment a few months ago, and they're like, you can't have alcohol, you can't have sugar, you can't have any hormones or birth control, you can't do this, you can't do that. You can basically have vegetables and fruit and enjoy. Yeah, and no, no cycling in the Alps. 
Yeah. Was, the one well, question that got picked up a lot was the the question about like you know after having cancer or or, or during like how did how did you think the stuff was going to contribute to your overall overall health? And he was just kind of like, well, whatever. Well, and they also asked him if he felt because he did all these drugs before he was diagnosed. Right. So the conspiracy theory is now like it caused his testicular cancer. Which I, I don't, I don't know, necessarily. Like, oh, Mel Gibson on me. Yeah. It's a little bit of a conspiracy theory, but if he was predisposed, okay. So I try to compare it to people who are predisposed to having um, breast cancer. And if you do multiple rounds of, like, in vitro fertilization, you can, you know, accelerate the disease. So if he's predisposed to testicular cancer, I, I kind of buy into the conspiracy theories a little bit. He, he clearly was predisposed to this disease. And, um, you know, he's pumping himself full of testosterone and human growth hormones. And I don't know. I just don't know how you could be on death door and want to win so badly at something that you're willing to risk your health. Right, and we're going to get this in just a second. My, my final yeah. thoughts on that, and obviously this may be a theme throughout the show and continuing mm-hmm. on because this is clearly not the end of the saga right. and the fallout. Um, I know they're already making a movie. You know, yeah, I saw that <laughs> about today. This already. Like JJ, was it J.J. J. J. Abrams? Abrams? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the bad robot guy, you know, from um, yeah. Cloverfield is making the last movie. So, my, my again, my, my final thoughts are I'm not a sports person. Mm-hmm. I'm, I've just never been an athletic you know, athletically, you know, interesting, interested, whatever. Mm-hmm. And the the notion to me about you know, Bill Maher said something funny last night about how the Lance Armstrong thing, the the Lance Armstrong thing has has not really changed his view of cycling because no one should care about cycling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Still like, cheap, mm-hmm. you know. But it, it brought up this memory of me from the '80s, which is the SNL did a skit in the late '80s called the All Steroid Olympics skit. <laughs> Whereas, like, it's just like it was just that's the what it is. The, you're allowed to take whatever you want to do the Olympics. And Phil Hartman was in the skit, and he pretended to lift a dumbbell with like a four thousand pound dumbbell, and his arms ripped off, and he felt no pain. <laughs> it was just a really funny skit. Was Happy Fun Ball involved? Yeah, in the fun ball. So it just reminded me, like, you know, from my perspective, yeah, you know, everyone cheats, and you know, everyone cheats, and you you can't not cheat. But you also don't have to sue people. Well, that that's the part. I mean, that, you don't have to bully people. The part that I felt yeah. that that hurt the most for me was, you know, people asked him, you know, he he was on record saying, "How could you possibly think that I would dope after what my body went through? Would I really be that stupid to inject these things into my body that had saved my life?" Right. And that was total bullshit, you know. Mm-hmm. And obviously, we know now, but just that he had the gall to even think that far-reaching. You know, to send that message out there to cancer survivors, mm-hmm. not the athletic community. Anyway, I digress. We'll be discussing this I talk ad about, nauseum. I could talk about this for like three hours, and everyone yeah. always, like being a cancer survivor, people always ask me about it. They ask what my thoughts are. I'm like, well, yep. do you have a minute or 20? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right, well, let's get to our first guest here. I'm excited to have her. She was supposed to be on earlier this year, but due to a scheduling conflict, she is a rock star in the Arnold Cancer Community. Because uh, not only did she star at the OMG 2012 East here in New York City, but she's become a wonderful go-to person for great advice. The Chief Executive Officer of Meals to Hills, please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Susan Bratton. Hello, Susan. Hello, how are you? Welcome aboard the Starship Enterprise. <laughs> Thank you. I'm yes. glad to be here tonight. No, it's great. It's great. Um, so th- this idea of um, you know nutrition and healthcare and well-being, you know, the general theme of everything we talk about. You know, even Lance, like, admitting, why would I do this? And what was he eating the whole way? What do you eat when you're on, like, meth and EPO and all this stuff? I have no idea. Anyway, 
I would love to hear how you got started in this, what inspired you to sort of take on this incredibly altruistic path in your career, sure. and to learn about uh, what, what bet you lost to get involved with us. <laughs> well, um, I uh, about four years ago, I had a very close friend who was diagnosed with a glioma of the brainstem, and during his treatment, I became very aware of the nutritional issues of cancer patients and cancer caregivers, and it was really, it was uh, interesting is probably not the right word, but both my friend Eric and his family uh, struggled with nutritional issues through through the treatment, and um, unfortunately, Eric didn't didn't make it. But it was it was a life it was a life altering um, moment for me. I, I started looking into it, and what I found was that nutritional issues like the ones that Eric had are really pervasive in the cancer community. Fifty to eighty percent of all cancer cases involve nutritional issues. Malnutrition is the number two secondary diagnosis in cancer patients, and a third of all deaths are due to severe malnutrition. So it's a huge, huge problem, and yet. There's also great research that shows that if people get proper nutrition, their outcomes improve, their quality of life improves, um, they have fewer treatment side effects, better uh, efficacy of treatment. So huge benefits, and yet uh, it was very difficult for Eric to get proper nutrition. And the other thing that I thought was really was very striking was that there's a load of information out there on the Internet. What happens when you're first diagnosed with cancer? You probably go to the Internet. Well, if you type in cancer nutrition, you find over 102 million different websites that are sources of information or, unfortunately, sources of misinformation. So well, Each contradicting the other one. Each yeah. contradicting the other one, and many, you know, many are really very dangerous for patients. So that was another thing that's, that struck me was that um, there, really was, there were very few go-to places for, for cancer nutrition where you could get evidence-based information, safe evidence-based information. So right. that was probably a more long-winded um, answer than, than you needed. <laughs> no, but it, it, it opens up a Pandora's box. Sure. But it really does. because it's the, the question is, does anyone really know what works and what doesn't work? On top of the fact that there are so many sort of mercurial variables with every individual treatment, diagnosis, circumstance, you know, access to, you know, financial issues regarding and, and just conflicting opinions where you could go to the to Dr. Google, as they say, <laughs> and find something that your doctor says is horribly wrong, but in actuality it might actually be good for you. So obviously the don't, you know, juice tree bark website, you know, will not help you. But what would you say uh, were the top resources for you to curate to really understand what might be of significant benefit to these individuals? So three great websites out there. The National Cancer Institute is a great website. The American Institute of Cancer Research and the American Cancer Society, all three had very good uh, information on nutrition. Um, The other thing that I did was I read read a lot of of studies, a lot of evidence-based studies in medical and nutrition journals. But but if you, if the kind of the three go-to would be ACS, NCI, and AICR. All very good resources. And how does Meals to Heal, how does it work? So um, there are kind of three legs to the stool. The first is, is uh, as you mentioned, the, the fresh customized meals that are delivered to patients' homes. We deliver in all 48 states. And the meals are, um, to, Matthew, you, you actually mentioned that no two, uh, no two treatments are the same, no two patients react to treatment the same. And so what we do is we actually tailor our meals to the reported nutritional side effects of the patients. And then based on what they report, 
nausea, vomiting, changes in taste, mouth sores, whatever the particular nutritional profile is, we then recommend meals that are best suited to help mitigate those nutritional side effects. And they're delivered to patients' homes uh, on a weekly basis anywhere in the 48 continental United States. So that's one piece. But, but the other thing that I think is really important is we have a great deal of information on our website that's, that's free, uh, great nutritional resources. We, have, um, we also have five oncology dietitians and one oncology registered nurse, so if you call our 800 number, you can speak with someone who's an oncology credentialed professional. And then the third thing uh, is that we, have, uh, we help patients get access to oncology dietitians because 80% of patients never even see a dietitian. So what we do is help patients uh, find oncology dietitians through our website. Is that largely due to um, a, a literacy on the part of navigating through care at the center? It's well, it's oh, so it's really it's interesting. It's a couple of different things. The first thing is there's really a supply demand imbalance. There aren't enough oncology trained dietitians. There are around 500 in the United States today. The second thing is uh, is that most cancer centers don't even have a dietitian on staff. Where you where Usually, where you find them is at the large comprehensive cancer centers sure. or the, mm-hmm. um, you know, the the educational institutions, the big cancer centers like NYU or Duke or, uh, you know, MD Anderson. Sure, sure. So, so that those are kind of two big reasons. The third is, nutrition isn't really, uh, it, it uh, historically it hasn't been integrated well into the into the care delivery regimen you have your oncologist you have your nurse you probably have a social worker if you're if you're lucky they're part of the team um and some places are are putting nurse navigators in as well but but dietetics is just so far outside of the the core circle of care right so what would you say to like uh, we have a funny anecdote from OMG 2010 Chris Carr is 2010 Kenny 2011. 2011. Chris Carr was our one of our keynote speakers, and she can be sort of very direct about her opinions on certain things. She's right here and right there, and it's just didn't go over very well with the crowd um, because these were largely people in treatment or right after treatment and just trying to get their life together. And and a debate struck up where one of our social workers, Sage Volte, who I think you know, Mm -hmm. stood up and said, you know, if I have a patient that just wants ice cream, I'm going to give them ice cream, mm-hmm. and I don't care what they want. I'm going to give them the ice, whatever they want. I'm giving them the ice cream. Nutrition be damned. If they want ice cream, give them the ice cream. Is is there a way to, you know, the patient, the psychosocial aspect of patient receptivity to health and wellness when you're just feeling like you're dying in a bed somewhere? Right. How do you break that? How do you break into that kind of conversation? So that's uh, that is you mentioned the ice cream. I mean that is that is so so common. And um, dietetic science will tell you that that's probably the not the best thing for them to be eating. Okay? Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Let's be honest here. Yeah. It's not really the best <laughs> food for any of us. But I do like my ice cream. Um, but I think I take a more pragmatic approach to it. Uh, you know, first and foremost, you're going to try to have somebody eat a, probably a Mediterranean-type-based diet with, with fruits and vegetables, but sometimes you're just not hungry for that. Right. So the next best thing is try to experiment. If I was talking to a caregiver or a patient, I would say, okay, you know, this doesn't sound good. You say you want ice cream. Why don't we try to instead um, freeze some blueberries and make a smoothie, and maybe that's something that would taste good to you. And so I think experimentation is really important. Sure. And also um, sharing, uh, sharing and, and asking questions of other, of other cancer patients. I mean, sometimes 
you know, they'll somebody will come up with something that works for them and it'll work for you as well. So I think communicating with with people within your own community uh as well. And then thirdly, um I think being being kind to yourself and being gentle on yourself and not getting trying not to get frustrated because nutrition is is just a huge huge issue and it's really it's very vexing and sometimes you feel like gosh, you know, I know I'm supposed to be eating the new Mediterranean diet, but it doesn't sound very good to me and and you know, just taking one little step at a time and and trying but but you can't change overnight and nor should you because back to the to the ice cream thing weight loss is a huge problem and weight loss is predictive of mortality and so the reason why nurses and doctors are saying okay if all you can eat is ice cream uh, then eat it is because they want to prevent weight loss Mm -hmm. and so I'm trying to say with an overlay here, um, let's try to experiment a little bit with the frozen blueberries as a for example. Right. And what are the more, so are your patients more people who are in treatment or survivors who are out of treatment? So um, our our food, um, the nutritional profile of the food is great for people who are undergoing treatment mm-hmm. or for prevention purposes, whether whether it's preventing recurrence or preventing cancer in the first place. Um, but 90% of our of our customers are patients who are undergoing treatment. What are the more popular meals? I know my favorite meals during treatment, which every doctor would say is terrible. Ice cream. <laughs> I I liked ice cream during when I was on the, my third drug, but when I was at the beginning, I really liked bagels with a lot of butter or a lot of cream <laughs> cheese, and I I did fall into the weight loss category because I just wasn't eating very much. So my doctor was like, eat whatever you want, have everything full fat, because they were just more worried I wasn't getting enough calories. Right. And I was getting, you know, like the fainting and all the things that come along with, you know, malnutrition. So, you know, what are the more popular meals? I could have I could have benefited from something like this, so I didn't eat so many bagels. So you mentioned bagels. So our breakfast foods people absolutely love, and we have these pancakes that I, they're, They've got kind of cinnamon sugary, and they're the little silver dollar pancakes. Mm-hmm. They're, I mean, it's like it's almost like eating sugar. They're just they're they don't have a lot of sugar, mm-hmm. but they taste really really good. So that's one. And then the other thing is, is we have a vegetarian chili that people just rave about. Mm-hmm. They love the vegetarian chili. So instead of sugar, do you use an alternative? No, we 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 use sugar um, sparingly, um, mm-hmm. but we don't add any any chemicals like stevia or, or not. Right. Stevia is not a chemical, but um, um, like Splenda, Equal, yeah. Mind Eraser. I mean, I mind think eraser, yeah. um, you know my this my opinion on that is I think it's better to eat the real stuff mm-hmm. than the the chemically produced stuff. Right. And what about the cost and how do people pay for this? Because some of the concerns that people have with their treatment is that they're just drowning in bills. Yeah. So how does the program work, you know, financially? How much does a system like this cost? So it works out to about $7 per meal. Okay. Um, so if you did three meals that's and, and two snacks, that would be around $35 a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a great gift certificate program, and I would say that 70% of our patients um, actually pay for their meals through gift certificates that their family, friends, coworkers have purchased. So that's been um, really, really popular. Uh, and, you know, if you think about it, your friend is diagnosed with cancer, you want to help out, um, what can you do? You may live across the country, so a gift certificate is a way, right. great way to help do that. And we want to help people, nourish people, that's just part of human nature, I think, when somebody gets right. sick, you want to cook for them. Yeah, and if they're like 100 miles away, you can't exactly show up at your doorstep with, you know, 
really Fresh stale Dunkin' muffins. Donuts. Right. Yeah, that too. <laughs> so, Susan, is this a model that could be adopted by, by uh, I mean, like a craft or a board and where they would help subsidize this as part of, like, a corporate social responsibility thing? Yeah, it's something that we're we're looking into. We've been looking into a couple of different ways. One of the things we looked at was could we set up a 501c3? That was my first um, my first thought. Don't, and they're actually don't legal. Start a charity. <laughs> <laughs> there are there are legal reasons why we can't do that. We can't be the beneficiary of of the charity. And so we're, right. we're, we've got to find other ways and we're looking into a couple of other ways to right. subsidize. Understood. Okay, well, what has been, you think, your biggest obstacle to date? You know, I think the biggest obstacle is just getting people, um, building awareness, having people know about us. Um, the food, you know, the, the the making of the food and the food delivery has really gone off very well. We've had really very few problems, if any. And um, and and people like the food and they like the service. And, and on a scale of 1 to 10, our customer service reps, who are all oncology-certified dietitians or nurses, um, rank uh, rank number ten on a, on the scale of one to ten. So all of that's actually worked out well, but people don't don't know about us. So that's that's the big hill we're we're looking to climb in 2013. So are there other organizations out there? I know, I mean, not in the cancer space, but you look at there are some like you know Jenny Craig or Weight Watchers. Is there something similar to this that that hasn't worked? and that you're kind of moving in with a smarter model? To date, I mean, I did a bunch of research on that, and I haven't been able to find anything that was focused on cancer. You're right about Jenny Craig, and there are um, some people who've been looking at helping out diabetic or heart, uh, chronic heart failure patients, congestive heart failure patients, but nothing in the cancer space to date. Right. Because I know, like, I, I, I felt like I could go vegetarian for about an hour uh, <laughs> in January, like two weeks ago, and I, I can't do that. I like I just like... I like beef yeah. and chicken too much. Right. I can't. Right. I can't. I, whatever. If I live five years less than I'm already going to live now, but able to eat beef, you're I'll, all right. I'll with take that. it. Yeah. <laughs> as long as that's like 80 instead of 85, I can, I, I'll, I'll be happy <laughs> with that. But at the end of the day, um, you know, there are all these vegan food delivery services. And do you, you know, first of all, who who makes the food? Who decides the recipes? And is there, you know, do you often find like these hippie cancer patients in New York that are only vegan? And, but they have to eat certain foods that go against their philosophies or religion, religious yeah. issues. Yeah. Um, so, so I guess two answers. The first is um, we have we have a couple of chefs, and then our our dietetic team, primarily Jessica Ionata, our chief clinical officer, um, works on on selecting the meals. And um, so that's number one. And then number two, your question on on veganism. We definitely get some requests. We aren't. We do have some meals that are vegan, but we couldn't. We couldn't do breakfast, lunch, and dinner for for four weeks for someone who's vegan, so we're just not right. able to do that yet. We do get those calls, and we can't, you know, we really can't. Sure, help them sure, yet. sure. Um, but it's, it's interesting. Uh, Tara Parker Pope uh, of the New York Times had a really interesting article last week, uh, a blog post on trying to become vegan, and it was um, very eye-opening. Uh, I think it's. I think a lot of people think. When they're diagnosed with cancer, they have to turn their world upside down and change their diet completely. And some people try the vegan thing, and I think that's that's a big that's a big step yeah. to do. When sure. when really the key is let's just stay nourished and try to prevent your weight loss. Let's not change right. your life overnight because you're right. already you've already had your life changed overnight. Yeah. Exactly. overnight. <laughs> I actually have one more question. Uh, not all patients, 
lose weight. Um, a lot, I've met a lot of uh, women, especially who have breast cancer, they gain a lot of weight. Uh, they're on very high doses of steroids. Mm-hmm. Um, they're on a lot of hormonal treatment, which causes them to gain weight. So do you have also programs to help people lose weight after treatment? We do. In fact, um, bec- you, you hit the nail on the head. Um, many breast cancer patients, because of how they're treated and because of, uh, as a result of the treatment, gain weight. And so we launched in October uh, a breast cancer survivor program that's geared to helping uh, breast cancer patients and survivors um, manage manage their weight mm-hmm. and and you know slowly and safely lose the pounds that they need need to lose so it's it's a portion controlled but it's all still very healthy right. mediterranean diet based cool very interesting and and the other thing about that is is it's not just the food with that we have a pretty comprehensive educational content 8 weeks of content where they have um, one-on-one counseling with our dietitian and webinars and um, and group counseling sessions. Well, it's it's fascinating. Yeah, it's definitely. really fascinating. From what I know, like you're the only one really doing this really well, and we, you know, you're on the wrong show to get promotion. Uh-huh. <laughs> you're gonna lose people for being on this show. No, but in all seriousness, I think that it's it's so important what you're doing and knowing just where we've come in terms of in terms of content. And even you know, I was treated in the Stone Age of '96. Like they were like, get the hell out of the hospital. You know, right. like this is a, the concept that the quality of life matters. Again, go back to Livestrong. Mm-hmm. What Livestrong has done is brought to the public consciousness this this uh, this hopefully this resounding understanding that the value of your life is not just determined by the days you live, right. but by how you live those days. And this adds so much value to that experience. So I can't thank you enough for choosing to take this route. Uh, well, thank you. It's been it's been a pleasure, and I'm 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 inspired every day by the people I meet and the people I speak with. Um, and if I can take Eric Eric's experience and turn it into a positive, then that's then I feel like I've I've done something. That's, and that's really you know he's he's my motivation. And uh, the website for all listeners is uh, www.meals-2-heal.com, and that 2 is T-O, not the number 2. So meals-to-2-heal, meals-to-heal.com. Yes. Awesome. Susan Bratton, thank you so much thank for you. coming on the Stupid Cancer Show. Thanks. All right, let's hit up the news here, folks. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Okay, Kenny, what is on the calendar? All right, I'm just going to read through them. We have meetups coming up in North New Jersey, Tempe, Arizona. We have a big meeting here at Sloan Kettering here in New York City, one coming up in Denver, Colorado. We have North New Jersey's hosting the What's Next, How to Get Busy Living. It's going to be an all-day seminar, followed by another New York City meetup. And one in Anchorage, Alaska, Matthew. Anchorage, Alaska. Put on your stupid cancer gloves and beanies. (laughs) (laughs) The stupid cancer parka. Exactly. Exactly. All right, it is here. Time to register for the OMG Cancer Summit, the sixth annual OMG Cancer Summit, uh, April 25 through 28 at the Palms Casino Resort in Las Vegas. April 25 through April 28, four days of awesome at one of the largest patient gatherings of its kind in the world. Visit OMG. 2013.org today and learn more about the OMG Players Club, an exciting way to earn travel reimbursement via fundraising. That's OMG2013.org. The Stupid Kansas Store has scores, Matthew. Scores of awesome products. Literally scores. Literally scores of awesome products for sale right now. Be proud. We're Stupid Cancer. StupidCancerStore.org. And don't forget about the Stupid Cancer Forums, newly relaunched and all prettyified. They're fantastic. Coming up on like 5,000 registered people. We're getting that. It's pretty amazing. 
This is your premier online community to connect with survivors, patients, parents, and caregivers just like you. Visit stupidcancerforums.org. And the, one, the Facebook works now, right? And Facebook is now working. You can click with one click. One click through Facebook, and that is your Stupid, Stupid Cancer, Cancer News. News. Okay, I am really excited about this show. I put the show together after I read about these guys, and I like it's just so important. It's so it's a confluence of so many great ideas. And uh, as someone who's dabbled in the health to digital health space for so long, there's so many bad ideas. <laughs> um, so it's my pleasure to welcome to the show Dr. Uh, Max, Max Witcher is the director of the University of Michigan's Cancer Center and is a world leader in cancer stem cell research. We have with us Steve Goldner is uh, a regulatory consultant for the FDA who's gotten hundreds of drugs uh, approved and medical devices approved. He's one of the founders of Cure Launcher. And Dave Fuhrer is an innovation specialist who has consulted for Fortune 500 companies around the world. He's a two-time cancer survivor and, again, founder of Cure Launcher. We're going to find out all about what that is today. Please welcome Steve Wilder, Dave Fuhrer, and Max Witcher. Gentlemen. Welcome. Great. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. All right. So, you guys rock, first of all. The show's been great. Uh, it's love being here. Thank you. Well, thank yeah, you thank so. you for being with us. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. Max, you with us? Yes, I'm with you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So, all right, this all comes down to clinical trials as the large umbrella for all of this, correct? Right, yep. So let's just start from there. We'll get to how you got into this. But to me, clinical trials are this, this, this nebulous, invisible character in healthcare that no one really quite understands, mm-hmm. that there's a huge stigma about, and that the survivorship movement has had no impact on, nor has it there in my mind, and I'm not in this space exactly, but there's really been no behavioral transition in the medical world to encourage recognition, adoption, retention, destigmatization, and follow-up. Is that fair? Did you just said you're not in the space because that sounded pretty impressive. <laughs> 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 not bad at all. All right, so let's start with you, Steve. So we really started this because one dad came up to me seven months ago and said his son was very, very sick, and could I help in some way? And I was able to whip out my computer and in about three minutes pointed out to him three clinical trials that were within 15 miles of his house, and he could get his son into them and begin to get some help very, very quickly. And he said, I had just done something more for him than an entire foundation where he donated a lot of money to it. And from that, this entire idea has gone from that genesis. We've been pushed forward by so many wonderful people like yourselves to be able to do this. And we've been up and running now for about two months. And in that time, we've had 5,000 users. Wow. So it's really possible to be able to change the paradigm. And this Internet is just a fabulous way to be able to do it. We'd call that an Uber mitzvot. (laughs) <laughs> For you non-Jewish listeners, that means a good deed. Yes. <laughs> All right, and uh, Dave. Yes. Had you uh, what, what, like Susan? What bet did you lose to get involved in this? <laughs> <laughs> no, I love your mission, and so being here is great for us. I did not lose a bet. It's great to be here. Uh, Steve and I, uh, Steve uh, and I, started talking about this in September, October timeframe, uh, and I had been working for the last ten years uh, consulting for big companies, uh, helping them get products to market. Um, and when Steve approached me with the idea, um, within three weeks, I knew this was something I had to go do. Um, being a two-time cancer survivor, 25, and then again at 30, uh, it's affected my life, as anybody who's gone through it knows. Um, and so for this, Steve and I get to give back. 
We give people the power to find their own treatments, to connect with uh, new cures in development, and it's been life-changing for me in the last three months. So before we get to Max, just can we you mind sharing a sto- that, 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 that that cancer story? Yeah, happy to. Um, so uh, I'm sure anybody can um, associate or, or empathize. Uh, it's not something on your mind. You know, at 25, you're going about other things, and then all of a sudden cancer smacks you in the face. Um, and so I, I went through it without much change to my life. And then again, at 30, uh, it affected me a lot, a lot, um, second time around. Um, and, you know, it's, so it's really only been, you know, you, like you said in the beginning, it, it hit me so much. Um, you heal, right? You go through the physical healing process, uh, and then all of a sudden you find yourself, well, what do I do now, and what's the rest of my life all about? Um, and so for me, this was a purpose and a calling. This was, you know, taking everything I've spent the last 10 years um, building and developing in myself to get ready to do this. And what was your diagnosis, and did you have a trial? Uh, so it was testicular cancer, uh, and no, I did not go through trial treatment. Um, I had just surgery the first time and then surgery, radiation, and hormone therapy uh, the second time around. And, you know, you mentioned about it's so nebulous, right, the clinical trial treatment. Uh, people just don't know where to find treatment, you know, and, and so when you go in to meet with your doc, uh, he sort of tells you what you should do and makes his suggestion, and you just do it um, because you trust what he says is the right thing. Um, but you're always left wondering, what else? What else can I do? Where else can I look for information? Um, um, and there's just not a good place. You know, it's either too scientific or not credible. It's not welcoming. And Cure Launcher's mission is to make a dent in the universe, right? We want to give everybody a place where they can find treatment and take control of that or empower them um, to find their own treatment. Wonderful. And Dr. Witcher, welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show. Uh, it's, it's wonderful to have you part of this wonderful team. Can you talk about your your uh, your, your history? Clearly, the, the, the Witcher Lab at, at UMICH is... Can I say that? I'm not a sports person. Is it you? Yeah. Is UM. Big Blue, UM, whatever it's it is. UM. I don't know these things. Anyway, well, wherever you happen to be in that state that looks like a glove. Um, it's a mitten. It's a mitten. Yeah, it is a Wolverine. <laughs> so, so, uh, you yeah. know, I think this relates very much to what you were talking about in, uh, in clinical trials. I think that uh, currently only about 3% of cancer patients uh, decide to enter a clinical trial even though the very best uh, treatment for them may involve this clinical trial. Uh, It's interesting that uh, in uh, children with cancer, uh, the number is much better. So a much higher percent of children uh, go on to clinical trials because uh, uh, oncologists and pediatric oncologists are very specialized, and general pediatricians don't really uh, uh, handle that. So the uh, uh, cancer uh, pediatrician uh, doctors decided long ago that they would enter uh, children onto clinical trials. And so um, almost half of children, or in some places more, go on to clinical trials. And the progress in treating childhood cancers, like testicular cancer that Dave talked about, has been much more rapid than uh, treating uh, cancers uh, in uh, older adults. Uh, and p- at least part of that reason is because uh, more uh, patients are going on to clinical trials, so we get answers much quicker. Do you attribute the adoption in pediatric cancer to the COG protocols as, as making that sort of a mandatory standard of care? Exactly. So it's become part of the culture for pediatric cancers that uh, clinical trials are the best care. And so the physicians uh, nationally have gotten together and decide what are the best uh, areas for research, what's the most promising uh, uh, and uh, and then it's understood that because that's the best treatment, then it's understood that uh, children go on to these clinical trials. We need to establish the same culture as for all cancer patients, uh, particularly now that we have 
uh, so many new kinds of treatments and so many new options, it's really important that patients understand that they have options where they may be able to get some of the advantage of these latest discoveries and latest treatments. And they need to ask their doctors whether they're eligible for a clinical trial at his office or her office, or if not, can they be referred to a National Cancer Institute cancer center where these clinical trials are conducted. Right. So I foresee, and let's, let's turn this over to the cure launcher folks, I foresee, this, I foresee three barriers to entry here that are obvious but may be amplified. One is doctor literacy, A, to be able to interject the knowledge of clinical trial potential for their patient, and like 1B for that would be what trials would they be eligible for, where to look for them, how to source them, and blah, blah, blah. Number two barrier is the patient literacy. What responsibility is it for the patient to bring to the table? We call it the oh, shit week, which is <laughs> diagnosis and when treatment starts. It's hopefully less than a week for most people. I waited six months. But the oh, shit week is you really have the cognitive wherewithal, again, Yiddish, the sechel in Yiddish, <laughs> you know, to actually have a, a discipline to understand to ask for trials right. and even know what it is when you're so scared. And the third barrier is the trials themselves. How will the trials find the patients? How will the, will the trials work, enrollment? And then the stigma associated with, I don't want to be a guinea pig. Mm-hmm. And as someone who spent 10 years in the branding and advertising world, I've always wanted them to figure out a new name. For, like, what is the Altria of clinical trials? Because Altria used to be uh, the, the, the cigarette company. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever they were. Um, anyone? R.J. Reynolds? No, the other one. Hmm? Yeah, yes, okay. Uh, so uh, Altria is the new cigarette company. They rename themselves to distance themselves from the, the reputation. Clinical trials sounds like you are a guinea pig. We should come up with a different name for it, and then patients will have less of an aversion to even appreciating. Anyway, I'm ranting on. Let's hear your thoughts. <laughs> well, part of this uh, uh, now is that the whole nature of clinical trials is undergoing a, a radical uh, change. Uh, and the clinical trials uh, used to be that we would treat all patients with a particular kind of cancer virtually the same. So, for instance, uh, you know, if you had testicular cancer, you would get treatment A, and then we'd compare treatment A to treatment B. If you had breast cancer, you'd get a different treatment, but we assumed that it would be all of the types of breast cancer were virtually the same. What's happening now is that we realize that each cancer is really very different, and we now have the tools to do a genetic or molecular analysis on every patient's tumor. Uh, And the new clinical trials are the idea of trying to match up a particular therapy to a particular patient uh, so that that uh, therapy is chosen to have the best chance of helping that patient. So I think a personalized approach to therapy might even be a better way to look at it than clinical trials, although this personalized therapy will be matching up the right new drug with with the, uh, uh, the genes in the patient's tumor. We can actually go uh, now from uh, having a biopsy of a patient's tumor to doing a complete analysis of the, of the genes of that tumor within a three-week period. And it's really quite remarkable because as little as uh, uh, 10 years ago when the genome was first sequenced, uh, it took about a decade to sequence a tumor, and it took $3 billion. Now we can do it in three weeks for about $3,000. And so we now actually have uh, tumor boards where we can present the genetic profile of a patient's tumor and uh, line it up with the best kinds of therapy. Now we have to do that as part of a trial to see if this new therapy will really uh, turn out to be better for that patient. 
So what patients have to realize are there are these new approaches that are going to change their options uh, for treatment, uh, hopefully to treatments that have less side effects and are more effective, but they have to inquire whether they're eligible to enter one of these trials. What Max really addressed here very, very eloquently is how the doctors are becoming so much more literate about being able to match the treatments with the patients. The second part of what you were talking about is the patient literacy. Cure Launcher excels in doing exactly that. All of the clinical trials currently are listed uh, on government boards, on the National Institutes uh, of Health boards. What Cure Launcher does is it changes that language into the common language that people are able to understand, and we have a geolocator zip code so that people can put in what their disease is and it will pop up right in front of them in common, easily understood language with a phone number to call in. And at the same time, it translates all of that so they can understand whether they'll be able to fit comfortably into that trial and not be scared by the words. One of my questions is, uh, sorry, not to jump in here, is on the cost. But you're only the co-host. I know, I know. I was like, I feel like you guys have a thought, but I have something that's I'm dying to ask. So one of the things that I came across was in treatment is insurance and yeah. what insurance wants to cover. And even with having, like, Cadillac insurance like I had, it was still unbelievably expensive to not die. So my question is, how does insurance play into this? Because I know one of the intimidating factors for doing a clinical trial is can you afford it? Mm-hmm. So well, one it, thing that's very important and, uh, is that the costs of the clinical trial that wouldn't be covered by insurance have to be picked up by the clinical trial itself. We insist on that for all clinical trials so that patients do not have to bear any of the cost of the mm-hmm. clinical trial itself. Uh, th- those costs are either paid by the government in the case of grants on some of these clinical trials, like the National Cancer Institute, or by pharmaceutical companies who are trying to develop new treatments. Even though the companies may subsidize and pay for these trials, they're carried out by independent researchers uh, who ha- are very objective in uh, evaluating the results. So it's very important for patients to understand that they should not have to cover any of the costs of clinical trials, uh, and costs should never be a factor in deciding whether a patient wants to participate or not. And so what CureLauncher does then is it makes it easy for patients, for people, to find what's right for them and then to connect with it. Um, so we've gone through the process of putting it all in easy-to-understand language uh, so people have one place to go to find a trial. They can connect directly with that trial. Um, and it sort of demystifies the whole thing. Matt, you said it's very nebulous and, and uncertain. Right. Um, so the goal is, well, let's take that away. Let's demystify it and just make it an easy place that people can go um, to find their own treatments. Well, I think we should first, again, we need to rename it because we've done numerous boards and workshops and breakouts and, and broadcasts on, on um, what do we the decoding or destigmatizing clinical trials, mm-hmm. like the, you know, the myths and facts of clinical trials. And what we found is all of our you know, research, if you want to call it that, you know, our anecdotal research is that most people are afraid of it. They yeah. think that it's placebo, and they mm-hmm. think they're getting a sugar pill, and they think that they don't want to be someone's guinea pig, and, and they just get like a number. Mm-hmm. And the truth is it's not that. We know it's not that, but how do you get the word trial out of the – because that's the consciousness. You're, you're on a trial. I don't want to get a trial. I want you know, enhanced biointerrogation. Mm-hmm. You know, that, <laughs> I want something. I want like, like chemo 
Turbo or something like that, you know. That's really what is going to get people to think differently about it because it's been the term. You know, I, I think that there are, uh, you know, some important parts uh, in terms of the, uh, this uh, trial concept. The, the first is the uh, idea uh, that some people had in the past that they would take a standard treatment and then if that didn't work uh, all the way down the road, if they had no options, then they should become part of a clinical trial. Well, it's important to understand that uh, the physician uh, should, you should discuss with the physician what all the options are. In other words, what could you expect from the standard treatment? How often uh, is it really helpful? What are the side effects of the standard treatment? And then in the clinical trial, what is the realistic chance that it may be helpful uh, and what are its side effects so that you can make uh, a reasonable judgment uh, uh, for instance, a good example of this is uh, a, a very aggressive disease like uh, pancreas cancer. Well, it, it happens that the standard treatments that we have are only marginally effective. They have side effects, and they really don't work very well. And yet there's some very promising clinical trials that are being done uh, to fight this disease. Right. And uh, so I think that, that the patient needs to decide, uh, is their best option to go on to this clinical trial? The other part of this is that when we do the, uh, a, a clinical trial with a new drug, it's called a phase one study because uh, we're trying to decide exactly how safe the drug is uh, as well as well, uh, then as later exactly how well it works. Well, it turns out that in the past when all we had was chemotherapy, the chance of a patient really benefiting from a new drug that was in this early phase study was really very small. But the new drugs that are in the, phase, in the same kind of early studies are really very different because they are targeted kinds of therapy, so they're not chemotherapy. And they, we match them up with the patient's genetic profile. And some of these early phase studies are showing much more clinical benefit than the established treatments, even in the early phase clinical trials. So it's a, really a remarkable turnaround. And the patients and the doctors need to realize that the patient's uh, best uh, hope may be to uh, enter one of these trials. The other thing that uh, we're doing now in large cancer centers like the one at the University of Michigan is to work very closely with community-based oncologists from throughout the region because we can work very closely as a team so that often uh, a patient can be on a clinical trial and stay right in their home neighborhood with their home doctor and yet be on a clinical trial that's being supervised through a major cancer center somewhere in their region. So that's really a very important option that needs to be considered, too. So just, just to give some kind of scope to how big this is, you know, we talk about clinical trials and what's available. Um, so on Cure Launcher right now, we have every breast cancer enrolling trial in the country, and they're at 7,500 locations. So the chances are they're somewhere close to where everybody's listening is right now. Um, and the unfortunate problem is that, um, on average, those trials will lose almost five months just looking for patients because wow. they, they really don't know how to connect with the people. So here we have people that are fighting breast cancer. They need treatment. Uh, go on Cure Launcher because you can find every breast cancer trial in the country and see if it's right for you or consider it. Right. Um, take a look at it and find out what's there. Um, trial treatment may not be right for everybody, but the lack of where do I go and what do I do um, says we have to give people the power to make that choice. I want to talk about the other component of Cure Launcher, which is that people have the option of funding trials. Can you talk about that? The idea here is that there are a tremendous number of startup biotech or medical device companies that are all fabulous outgrowths of National Institutes of Health Research. They're unable to find exactly the kind of funding that they need to have, and the cures 
are just dropping out one by one by one, year after year after year. Here's a place where people can go with complete transparency. Look at the doctor who's doing the study. Look at the doctor who's done the invention or the scientist and be able to donate however much money you wish to do to exactly that cure, to exactly that treatment for yourself or for others. And it's a tremendous opportunity. Cure Launcher is able to bring more money directly to the cure rate, and it's enhancing the rate at which all of these processes move through to get into the clinic and help people right away. Steve, you know, I think that's such a wonderful idea. Uh, as you know, uh, right now uh, of uh, proposals that are reviewed by the National Cancer Institute and thought to ha be meritorious, only 7% are actually funded. That's all the money that's available. And there are so many good ideas now that are going unfunded because there just isn't enough money. And some of the very best ideas are unfunded because uh, they're, they're uh, more novel. And sometimes it's very hard to get money for things that are very new or very, very creative, even though those are the, really where the big breakthroughs are. So having a, a source like your website is just terrific because it enables uh, people to look for themselves and decide what they think is, uh, is worthy of being able to uh, support. Great point. So um, anybody listening right now can go on our Facebook page, uh, Cure Launcher, all one word, and tell us what you want. Tell us what trials you'd like to find out about. Like the page and tell us what you're looking for, and we'll help you find it. Um, and that's what gives you the voice um, to find trials you're looking for or what new treatments are in development. Um, it gives you the power um, to find and connect with those. You know, I, I keep going back to this idea that I've had from a very long time ago. I, I've been involved with Health Tucana, Rock Health, and Blueprint Health, and all the people that sort of integrate and inbreed in the, that sort of ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And and I've seen so many like trial social startup ideas come along and try to laypersonize things and get doctors to change behavior and bring awareness to to patients and consumers that ask for this, and nothing has really quite worked yet. And I mean, even Google failed at trying to bring health care to the consumer. And, and they, that tells me no one can really do it well because mm -hmm. we live in such a disparately dysfunctional <laughs> environment in this country. I can't help but think that, that what is typically part of the course is that change comes from consumers, yes. not from industry. So what is it going to take to get people who've been on successful trials to share that trial with the social universe so that their friends and family and influencers and circles would then trust that person's story about yeah. that trial. And the uptake from that would be basically a social revolution on the destigmatization of trial success. Yeah, so that, that's a great point. So if you look at, there, there's actually a lot of uh, satisfaction of people that have gone through trials. You can find it on the clinical research sites. You can see the experience. Um, and the number is really high. So it's surprising the experience is typically a good one. Um, and I think, Max, I heard him say earlier that only 3% of cancer patients ever get into a trial. Um, if we increase that to just 6%, so if we double the number of people that get into clinical trial, we'll take three to four years off the development timeline. Right. Right. So we'll get new treatments to market that work. These are valid, great science new treatments to people faster just by that slight bump. Okay. So let's go find a billionaire venture capitalist and start <laughs> mytrials.org, and we'll start socializing success stories. Perfect. Come on it. All right. Yeah. All right. And, All right. and I might offer that this is that social moment in social media where anyone who's listening to this show 
can come on Facebook for Cure Launcher right. and write in and express how a trial went for them. And if you'd like to be that poster guy or poster gal, we're happy to do it. We've had this site up now for about seven weeks, and in that time, we've had over 5,000 users. So this is growing very, very rapidly, and we'd invite everybody to come on and let us know how it's gone for them. One of my questions I have about who are the type of people who are looking for clinical trials? Is someone who's an early diagnosis, a new diagnosis, someone who is more advanced or perhaps been in remission a long time and had a recurrence? You know, what do you kind of find as who seeks the clinical trial treatment? Well, all of the above, actually, because it depends very much usually on, on the background and the, uh, the belief systems of patients. Some, uh, no matter uh, what stage of the disease, really want to find out what all the options are right from the beginning. And there are some diseases and st- uh, states for which we actually have quite good treatment. Uh, we, uh, I think that uh, Dave mentioned you know, the, uh, the success with testicular cancer. Uh, and we, we have wonderful results where the vast majority of men are cured of the, of the cancer. So it really uh, is wonderful. And now the trials are really trying to define treatments that have less and less side effects, even though they're all effective. On the other end of the spectrum, we have some cancers that are, uh, our treatments are completely inadequate. And I mentioned pancreas cancer, but there are many other kinds of cancers where the uh, standard of treatment is completely uh, inadequate and, and not acceptable. And there, I think, it's reasonable to enter a clinical trial right from the beginning. Uh, so I think for different diseases, uh, it may be appropriate at different times. And the key is, uh, as uh, uh, Steve and, and Dave have both said, the, is the information. Uh, you know, one of the things that I find now in my own clinic, my own clinical practices, uh, my own specialty is in the area of breast cancer, Many of the women, probably most now, come in with uh, Internet uh, um, uh, information about uh, different treatments and trials, and we spend a lot of our time going over uh, current uh, state of uh, knowledge. So I think that the Internet is having a big impact on patients, particularly one that choose to come to cancer centers, and the trials might be right for any patient. And at least I think patients should explore what their options are, discuss it with their doctors, but also explore for themselves by going into the Internet uh, and looking at and seeing what their options are. Matt, could we just, so um, how are we on time? I want, I'd like to give. We have a good, we could do yeah, five or ten minutes. Okay, so um, let's save actually the last couple minutes for um, Dr. Wisha, because what he's doing is really revolutionary, and I want to make sure that he has a chance to talk to that. Um, and just in the last couple of minutes, um, so things we want to convey, um, we have every breast cancer trial on Cure Launcher right now. We encourage everybody to come check them how out. How do you curate that, by the way? How do you keep updated? How do you know when a brand new one comes out there that you have to, is all the, the government database, is that it? Yes. What we do is we mine through a couple of government databases, and we have a staff that pulls through it, and we've developed an app called Cure Trial. And it translates what's essentially 14th, 15th, 16th grade language, postgraduate language, right. into common English that, just like you would read, frankly, in the daily news, right? Mm-hmm. to be able to do that. And we just constantly update it every week. So does everyone start with Snooky? 
Uh, tell us that. Tell us that on Facebook. You want to start Sticky, and we'll make it happen. So, yeah, you uh, should Jersey Shoreize the <laughs> clinical trials by by character. Yeah. The, so the the only other thing I wanted to add to is we encourage anybody um, to share with us on Facebook um, your story or how Cure Launcher can be more relevant for you. Um, for us, making this right um, means it does something. For for people, right, and, and going through treatment myself and um, being a cancer survivor, um, we have to feel like we're in control, and it's taken me a long time to get to that point. Um, I, we want to do everything we can to help others do the same thing. So please reach out. We'd love to hear from you um, in any way. So, Dr. Wisha, what is one of the programs you have going on right now? Well, one of the things that we think is one of the most important uh, new areas of research is uh, p- uh, resulting from the discovery that many cancers, including breast cancer that we work on, uh, actually are composed or driven by a small subset of cancer cells that we call cancer stem cells. They, we call them that because they have properties of stem cells, uh, of normal stem cells. But uh, these can comprise only about 1% or 2% of the cells in a cancer. And what uh, we and now many other labs uh, have uh, replicated is that uh, many of our current treatments, like chemotherapy and radiation therapy, are very effective at shrinking tumors down. But the stem cells are like the roots of a plant. They're resistant uh, to these types of treatment. And that explains why many tumors, when they shrink down, come right back uh, and are not cured by these treatments. Now, in, treatment, in cancers like testicular cancer, the stem cells happen to be very sensitive to chemotherapy. But in most other tumors, they're not at all. Uh, and these are, uh, seeds of the cancer are also responsible for the most deadly part of a cancer, that is its spread or metastasis. The good news is we're learning now what makes these uh, cancer stem cells uh, survive and grow. And uh, we are, along with pharmaceutical companies, are now developing new drugs that can actually attack these cancer stem cells. At our cancer center, we now have almost a dozen clinical trials, like we talked about, that are specifically aimed at attacking cancer stem cells, not only in breast cancer, but in other kinds of cancers. And we hope that this will result in much more effective uh, treatments for cancer because, again, these are the cells at the root of cancer. And it really changes our approach to how we design clinical trials because the end point of a clinical trial, we think, should not just be shrinkage of a tumor, but ultimately it should make patients live longer and with a better quality of life. I think the one of the most compelling things that we've heard here in the young adult world, because we, we argue that there really is no young adult chemo, young adult treatments. Everything is sort of an extrapolated protocol mm-hmm. from adult oncology, on top of the fact that it's been proven time and time again, and it's in all the published research, that if you're treated for a blood cancer or a sarcoma, um, or even, even um, uh, blood cancer sarcoma like a myeloma, that if you're given pediatric protocols as a young adult, your outcomes are far superior than if you're given adult protocols. So given that as data, the part that I find most exciting about trials and genomics and epigenetics is that it's not a one-size-fits-all just for this tumor, just for this nocate, and it's not going to be about body parts in the future. We always argue that. It's not about where your cancer is. You're going to be treated because of you. And once that becomes sort of more of a universal adaptation, then young adult cancer will be of of value. There will be actually long-term longitudinal outcomes on the clinical realm for young adults. So instead of getting treated with a 75-year-old colon cancer therapy, like our intern Matt was at 22 years old, he'll be treated because he's just 22. So he'll have have the same projected outcome as someone with, with, with just that medicine, regardless of where the cancer is. So, yeah, as a matter of fact, we're working now on technologies 
that just from a blood test will be able to isolate the circulating cancer cells. And even on a single cell, we'll be able to soon analyze the whole gen uh, genetic analysis on each cell. So that will really allow us to uh, personalize the therapy for each patient, both uh, uh, children uh, uh, and adolescents and adults. Amazing stuff. Mm -hmm. All right, so we got a few minutes left. What else do you want to talk about? <laughs> Snooky? We did, did Snooky already. <laughs> <laughs> Let me share the story, the article story. Sure. So uh, I want to give you a thank you. So um, what, what Matt's done um, with I'm Too Young for This and Stupid Cancer, uh, when I was going through um, my cancer several years ago, uh, my aunt mailed me an article that was in the Rochester newspaper in upstate New York, um, and it was Matt and what he was doing, and that was several years ago now. So I still have that article, um, and it's an honor to be here and with you guys. So um, thank you for being part of my treatment and for what you do for everybody. It's funny how things come full circle. Absolutely. Uh -huh. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're hired. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to stay in New York. I'll stay here. Phenomenal. No, this is such an important and sensitive issue, and, and it's been a, a sort of a, a subdued passion of mine. I mean, we can't spend all my time on it, but the, just this idea of, yes, what would, what would it take? This is totally rhetorical, and this is for Max also. What would it take to get mandatory trial as standard of care for adult oncology like it was with COG? Is that even reasonable? Is there, What would it take? Is there a conversation there? Because if you're looking at depending on doctors and literacy and patients and public awareness, it's probably not going to be that much different in five years from now. We'll, we'll see percentages of increases. But I, I just keep going back to COG. I was on a COG protocol, even though I was 21 with medulloblastoma. It wasn't a cookie-cutter thing that they could do for me, right. but I was treated as, as if I was six years old. And I, I attribute that to if I was given adult brain cancer, oncology, whatever they were going to give me back then, I'd be dead. I'm fairly sure of that. Mm -hmm. But it's because of the standards of care that, that that is why I'm alive today. And that's why kids survive 90% now for leukemia, 95% for leukemia sometimes too. Is there, and this will be like the final rhetorical James Lipton, what's your favorite curse word, end of the conversation. <laughs> but is there hope that trials would become more of a standard of care as part of like the, the uh, NCCN guidelines per se? I think it's a real hope, and as you say, the model is childhood cancers. Uh, it means a change in the culture, both of the medical culture, but also of the general population where they view clinical trials as being the best therapy and they'll demand that they be uh, at least given access to that. Yeah, and it's, it starts by having a voice. Right. If we have a voice in making that happen, um, and each person wanting their own personalized care, um, that's real incentive to make it happen. The reason we made Cure Launcher was to be able to give people a place to have that voice. Before that, that voice was just muted so much, people didn't know where to go or be able to do it because they just really couldn't speak that language. Now you can. The Internet goes everywhere all the time, and all you have to do is be able to type these words in, and it will find it for you. This is a terrific technology, and it enables us to bring something much as we've seen revolutions all over the globe because of technology like this. That's what's happening here. The cancer spring. Yes. <laughs> yes. I love it. I love it. That's exactly it. <laughs> all right, I just trademarked that, so you're all screwed. <laughs> you're hired. Okay, phenomenal. Well, Dave Fuhrer, Steve Goldner, Dr. Max Witcher, you guys are amazing. This is really transformational stuff, and I can't thank you enough for, A, flying here to begin with. Yeah. Um, well, not you, Max, but calling in is just as good. <laughs> yeah. and, and making the effort. It's really wonderful, exciting. We love to have guests physically here. Of course, it just enhances the conversation mm -hmm. so much. But I'm a huge fan of what you're doing. I'm, I'm on board with this 
this philosophy of increased adoption and destigmatization because I think it'll help my generation yeah. as much as it'll help the other generations. And we need all the hope we can get to believe that well, our survival rates will improve. Very well said. Well so CureLauncher.com. Check it out on Facebook, too, Facebook.com slash CureLauncher. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's going to be great. And don't forget our debunking clinical trials program at the OMG Cancer Summit, uh, April 25 through April 28, another great way to sort of learn about the rabbit hole we're all talking about. So thanks, gentlemen, for coming on the Stupid Cancer Show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, good show. Very good show. Very good show. Yes. Kenny, did this resonate with you? It, it completely resonated with me, Matt. How is that possible? Uh, <laughs> if, if I get cancer, I now know more about clinical trials. Yeah, yeah. Well, not good that you won't. Right. Because that would be kind of bad. Yeah. Study one of these things. <laughs> that you work for a cancer organization that got cancer. That would be the moment that I know I've spent too much time with you. <laughs> it's contagious. That hasn't happened yet? No, no, this is the moment that you realize you spent too much time with me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, well, now it's time for our closing sequence, folks. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show, number 251. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at stupid cancer. Okay, we'd like to thank our guests, Susan Bratton, Dave Fuhrer, Steve Golder, and Dr. Max Witcher. And next week's show joins as we welcome the senior leadership founder, CEO, Yael Cohen, and young adult breast cancer survivor, Bernadette, Bernadette Leno, from the awesome Canadian charity, Fuck Cancer. Fuck Cancer is a movement that educates people about early detection, prevention, and communication of cancer. And also in the Survivor Spotlight, Brain Cancer Survivor and Ted Fellow, Salvatore Iancanesi. He is a really amazing guy, by the way, on CNN. Okay, folks, if you've missed any of our past shows, all 250 of them, download them all for free on iTunes at itunes.stupidcancer.org or check out the archives at stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, if it ain't cancer, it ain't stupid. If it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. That made no sense, and I had brain cancer. Live from the chemo deck, on behalf of Kenny Kane, Andy Goodman, myself, and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show, have a great week. We'll see you back here next Monday live at 8 p.m. Eastern. Hey, Good night. Good night. So...